This podcast is brought to you by Premiere, the UK's leading Christian media organisation. As we approach the end of our financial year, we want to remind you that podcasts like this are only possible due to the generosity of supporters like you. You could help reach millions of people throughout the year through shows just like this. Make your best gift today at premierchristianradio.plus. The Profile. You're listening to Premier Christian Radio. Hello and welcome to The Profile here on Premier Christian Radio with me, Katie Stock. This programme is brought to you in association with the magazine I write for, Premier Christianity. If you'd like a free sample copy of the latest issue please head to our website, premierchristianity.com forward slash free sample. Today on The Profile, I am speaking to Professor Stanley Hauerwas, the son of a Texan bricklayer who found himself studying theology at Yale. He has since taught at various prestigious American universities, including Duke and Notre Dame. And since 2014, he has been chair of theological ethics at the University of Aberdeen in Scotland. Stanley, welcome to the programme. It's lovely to be here. So let's start at the beginning. You were uh, born and raised in Texas. Can you tell me a little bit about your parents and those early years of your life? Um, my father was a bricklayer. My mother was from what we call hard scrabble, Mississippi, which means that uh, her father was what was generally called a cotton mill junk, drunk. Uh, namely, he worked in the cotton mills and got drunk on the weekends. And they scratched out a living also raising cotton and that kind of thing. Um, she um, got away from Mississippi by selling magazines and ended up in Texas. Met my father. My father was um, the son of... Uh, the was in a family that he had five brothers and everyone was bricklayers. So uh, I grew up, when I was seven, I was taken out on the job and um, I labored for bricklayers until I was 15. And then I, uh, my dad finally let me learn to lay brick. And uh, so we were, we didn't know it, but we were poor whites. And we went to a Methodist church called Pleasant Mound United Methodist Church. And it might not be understandable in England, but you could join the church on Sunday morning, but you had to be saved on Sunday night. So the Sunday night services would last, oh, anywhere from an hour and a half to two hours. Ser- I mean, you shouldn't be saved unless the sermon was at least 45 minutes long. <laughs> So um, I, would, I was about 15, and I thought I wanted to be saved, but I didn't think you should fake it. And I'd started to date, so I was sinning, and I knew I needed saving. But um, uh, I, it just didn't happen. So finally one night we were singing I Surrender All for the 25th time for the altar call. Yeah. And uh, I thought, this is going to go on all night if someone doesn't do something. So I went up and dedicated my life to the Lord. I had no idea what, what I was doing. Um, and uh, we had an associate minister at that time who had actually gone to seminary. 
and he told me that you needed to read. So I read some very bad books. But then I happened to hit on a book by a man named uh, uh, David uh, uh, Napier, who was an Old Testament scholar. And I didn't, we weren't smart enough to be fundamentalists, but we thought the Bible was true, and of course I discovered that it's much more complex than that. And then I read a book by Nels F. S. Foray called The Sun and the Umbrella, in which he used a kind of a takeoff on Plato's cave to suggest that religion probably hid God as much as revealed God. And so I, I thought, well, that's right, and so I started giving it up. But I had been put on the road to um, going to college, but no one in my family had ever gone to college. We, we knew few people had gone other than teachers at school. And uh, so I was committed to going to college. And uh, I went to Southwestern University in Georgetown, Texas. We, uh, and there I was the philosophy major. And I discovered that through the reading of philosophy, I had a wonderful teacher. And we used Copleston, who was at Heathrow. Uh, and wrote uh, the history of philosophy. Uh, so I had a six-semester course in philosophy reading Copleston in the primaries. And I began to think I wasn't smart enough to be an atheist, so I decided to go to divinity school. And so I went to Yale. I thought if I was going to be a Christian, I would be a liberal Christian, Tillich something. But I discovered, and I thought that the challenge of Christians giving up the Jews was one of the crucial issues of whether Christianity was true. And I discovered that it wasn't the liberals that fought against that. It was Bart. And I read Bart, and the, the rest is history. Yeah, no, no. I, I say, um, you don't have to become a theologian to be a Christian, but I probably did. Yeah. <laughs> and I've been at it ever since. And so you've come from a background where, you know, revival and being saved are, are really important. And you touched on that saying, you know, um, that you came to um, believe through writing, that that's been, the, the writing has been a really important yes. part of you growing in your faith. What do you think that, that has said about your changed understanding of, of what belief is? What it changes um, is a sense that um, you shouldn't take your own subjectivity that seriously, but that the church believes for you in ways that initiate you into practices that make you more than you could have imagined just by your own sense of agency. And um, so you write within a tradition. So it's a, a lot more of a corporate understanding of, of church. Yes. Um, okay. No, that that makes a lot of sense. And and so when you went to college, like you said, you were the first person really in, in your town who wasn't a, a minister or a, a teacher mm-hmm. to go to college. How did you find that um, when you arrived? You know, was it a big culture difference? Um, I'd never been around people that had money, <laughs> and some of my fellow students. Um, uh, had money and uh, I uh, I mean for example I, I, I 
I, someone had left a tennis racket at our house once, and so I decided to become a tennis player. And uh, I, um, I took my racket to college, and I, and I was playing against uh, uh, one of my student colleagues once, and I beat him. And when uh, I beat him, he took his racket and crashed it against the cement and broke it. I couldn't imagine, I mean, that someone had the resources to destroy their racket. So I, um, uh, I've, I've always had a sense of being part of a people that are um, hardworking, and um, don't, um, they don't take life for granted. And um, I mean, they're all the way through my education and there's always people smarter than you, but they don't necessarily work as hard as you do. And, so, and that's like the edge, do you think, that, that you had? I think it was partly that. I think also, I was very fortunate. I had a teacher. His name was John Score, and um, he was a wonderful um, Christian who um, read Nietzsche, <laughs> and so he wouldn't put up with foolishness. And um, just, I mean, John had the view that. If you were Christian, you had a strong stake in being truthful, and I, that came home to me well. I hope, and I tried to to live that, and that was a great gift to have someone to be that kind of mentor. And you, you, you often. Um describe yourself as not quite fitting in and so within college there's a that class difference of, of not quite right. fitting in but also um theologically you're very difficult to place in a camp yeah. um, I'm sure people try often that um and, and many people claim you for their own when perhaps um you you might disagree right. do you see a uh, a prophetic element to that not belonging um I think there could be a prophetic element to it if it uh if it didn't result in further narcissism <laughs> because you could make uh that into a kind of um, program to make yourself different in a way that would I think be very self-deceptive. And you try not to do that? I try not to do it. I um, I, I know, um, I mean, people have described me as prophetic. I, I say anyone that has taught at a major research university and received the salaries that you get at a major research university, you're not prophetic. But um, what I do try to do is um, help people recover the significance of the everyday grammar of Christian belief. And um, that what an extraordinary thing it is to be a Christian today. 
and that's part of our coming out as Christians of a world in which Christianity was taken for granted. And just to the extent that I can help us recover the oddness of what we believe as Christians, then if you want to call that prophetic, that's okay. But I'm just trying to do everyday work that I think uh, Christianity demands. And particularly in, in the American context that you're in, that um, that more so than perhaps in Europe where Christianity is still very much... Uh, the, the the norm. Do you think so? I I I mean I I I I often suggest that America is much more secular than England, and people think, well, that's crazy because many more people go to church in America than go to church in England. But people that go to church in America bring their secularism into the church with them and and take it out with them. Uh, in England, Christianity's in the stones. And you can't, you can't break them up. Uh, I mean, I know that you turn redundant churches into restaurants, <laughs> but uh, uh, nonetheless, it's still, people knew it was a church. And, yeah. and there was a sense of uh, the difference that made. Yeah. And so coming back to this thing of, you know, not being in one theological um, camp specifically, do you find that lonely? Because you, you've spoken about how when you spoke out after 9-11 and, and mm-hmm. speaking against where the American reaction was going, that you lost friends in, in doing I did. that. Is that lonely? Uh, yes, uh, I, uh, I sometimes do um, uh, feel a bit isolated, but then I have uh, I have extraordinary friends, and um, they often help me uh, say better what I'm trying to say than I've said. So um, I uh, sometimes I I the kind of way I've done theology has been very puzzling to many people. And uh, part of loneliness is being misunderstood because to to understand me, it takes work. And uh, that's a kind of frustration that can be described as a kind of loneliness as um, in the world in which we find ourselves because you're... If you spend this, the, the time doing the hard work of writing, and writing is thinking, uh, you want to be understood. And um, the um, and people want to keep fitting you into boxes that they've already established. And um, I'm trying to change those boxes. I um, one of the one of the ways to put it is um, I've um, I've changed the questions and people therefore keep wanting to use the answers to the questions that I've changed <laughs> and uh, that's a mistake uh, 
you've got to ask the new question. So would you see yourself then primarily as a question um, asker? I I think, uh, yes, I, I ask questions and I follow them up. Uh, there's, a, there's a very strong uh, philosophical side of my work yeah. that is about questioning. Okay. Um, so your uh, first wife, Anne, uh, suffered with serious uh, mental health problems as well. It was manic depressive mm. then, now it's bipolar. Bipolar. Um, and that, reading your memoir, it looks as though you had to really navigate that without a huge amount of support beyond right. a very small group of friends. Yeah, but when, when you are uh, close to someone that's suffering from serious mental illness, they will oftentimes say, you can't tell anyone because if you tell anyone, they will treat me like I'm mentally ill and that will only make me mentally ill. So there is an isolation um, that comes from trying at the same time to be a caretaker, but but as caring, you need support because when when you live with someone that's seriously mentally ill, it, I mean, every five minutes is different, and uh, you are not never sure when they're in an episode and when they're not. So you you need a lot of help. You need a lot yeah. of help. And uh, you previously kind of referred to this as um, you were kind of being taught the Christian practice of living out of control. Yeah. Do you think that that is a discipline that Christians have to learn the hard way? Yes. Yeah. I mean, you, none of us like learning to live out of control. <laughs> and um, I mean, it's a central metaphor for me that I that I originally uh, used in the peaceable kingdom, um, namely. Um, if you worship a savior who ended up on a cross, how can you think you're in control of your life? Um, and so you've got to be ready to be surprised. Um, I mean, certainly existentially living with, um, and, uh, who was severely out of control, uh, puts you out of control. Uh, in that way. And, of course, I had a son to raise. So um, how to raise a son within a world of madness is not uh, it's not straightforward. Mm. And so, Stanley, you've, you've become more than an academic, really. Um, in, instead, some people have said that you're one of the most influential living theologians that there are. Um, despite this perceived success do you experience you know imposter syndrome that feeling that you might get found out perhaps that it's all a kind of admin error um when um i have a close friend named enda mcdonough who is a catholic moral theologian taught at saint patrick's maynooth for uh, many years he's retired now and is retired and once i was talking to enda uh, and i said uh, it, do you ever feel like you just don't know what you're doing and he says I always have this sense and dream sometimes that I've given this lecture and when I finish someone stands up and says you don't know what you're talking about do you 
And I'll have to say, you're absolutely right. I don't have any <laughs> idea what I'm talking about. I'm talking about God, and I know what I'm talking about. Um, uh, so, uh, yes, you always uh, feel the fragility of what you're doing. And if you ever get to the place that you don't feel that, uh, then you ought to quit being a theologian. Yeah. And do you think that that's drawn you to study more and and, and read more? I'm a reader. Uh, I've always been a reader. Uh, words are everything for me. And um, when people remark that I've written so much, I my response is, is that's because I read. And I, my, um, my deepest um, weakness is there's nothing I'm not interested in. My deepest strength is there's nothing I'm not interested in. So my reading is completely um, uh, unplanned and haphazard. I mean, who would have anticipated that Howard was would find Trollope one of his great resources. <laughs> so um, I, uh, uh, I, I love to read novels, and uh, I love to read philosophy and uh, history. So, yeah. I mean, theology isn't a discipline because theology wants it all. Yes. There's, n- there's nothing we, we don't want to talk about. And that's the joy that um, I have friends who, you know, we studied theology together, but we studied, you know, the same core modules, but went off and studied different areas. And, right. you know, there's no end to, to the, the scope of the theological reflection. One of the aspects of my work that um, is not commented on that much, though it's beginning to be more um, recognized, is the scope of it. I mean, I've, I've, and I didn't plan that. It just happened that why would I address issues of mental disability? Um, why um, is issues of nonviolence so important? Um, where uh, does the uh, work on the importance of narrative and the virtues come from? Uh, so, um, uh, I, um, Brian Brock at Aberdeen and I've just done a book called Beginnings, uh, Interrogating Hauerwas, and uh, I, we talk about some of that in that book, uh, and it, it can be very frustrating for people reading me because there just seems so much that is going on, and I don't apologize for that. There's a lot going on that um, I hope to help us see better the demands that the gospel put on us. I mean, my little uh, way of putting it is you can only act in the world you can see, and you can only see by learning to say. And that is a... Um, discipline that is never over. So moral um, reflection for me is not about what I ought to do in X or Y circumstances, but much more about how 
is the descriptions of the world I'm using, faithful or unfaithful, within the, within the demands of the gospel. Okay. Um, do you think there's a weakness in, um, in the scope in that you, are there things that you've, you've written decades ago that you have changed your view on but have not revisited? Or do you stand by much of what you've written? I stand by most of what I've done. I stand by. I, I wrote a terrible article on abortion, <laughs> <laughs> which I which I wrote another article, hopefully showing that why why what I did was wrong. Um, uh, I think there's always something more to say, in a way that um, one remark requires another remark. But um, on the whole, I'm not unhappy with uh, the work I've done uh, and, and what I've done in the past. Recently, Bloomsbury, uh, T&T Clark, uh, have started a new series called Cornerstones. And um, I have a book called um, Sanctify Them in the Truth that they decided to be one of the reprints for, for this um, uh, new series, which they're bringing back books that they that are out of print that they think they want to keep in print, and so I read the book um, in order to write a new introduction, and I thought this is pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> I'd forgotten uh, the work that I'd done uh, in the book that uh, I continue to presume, but uh, so it's you speaking to yourself for yes. you know decades along, right. and um, I, yeah, I think. Um, I think most people, when they read back on their work, you're kind of, oh, that was quite a good point and, you know, in, was, in the end. Yeah. You hope it's that way around anyway. I, one of the things I did discover um, is, and it's interesting, I find some of the early work um, uh, hard to read because of the masculine pronoun. Right. Uh, I mean, that we slowly learned to not exclude uh, the feminine uh, from how the pronouns worked. Um, uh, I, I I think that's an advance, and I applaud it. And I tried to retrain myself um, uh, not to let uh, the he and the hymns overwhelm uh, what I was writing. Well, that's yeah, that's really interesting. Well, Stanley, that brings us back to. Um, Brings us to the end of part one. Um, but, you know, join us again in a moment while we hear more from Pre- Professor Sani Hawass, and we'll be right back. The Profile. You're listening to Premier Christian Radio. Hello and welcome back to The Profile here on Premier Christian Radio with me, Katie Stock. This programme is brought to you in association with the magazine I write for, Premier Christianity. If you'd like a free sample copy of the latest issue, do head to our website, premierchristianity.com forward slash free sample. Today on The Profile, I'm speaking to the man who Time magazine describes as America's best theologian, Professor Stanley Howes. So Stanley, you've said that your aim is to live a life that is unintelligible if the Christian God doesn't exist. Would you, would you say that the Western church has lost her way by compromising on, on this basic benchmark? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I do think that that's the case. 
um, there are, um, I have been influenced by uh, a Mennonite theologian named John Howard Yoder. There's a, there's a long story about how that needs to be qualified, but um, um, John directed our attention to what happens when Christians turn the gospel into a formula for ruling people who are not Christians. That's called Constantinianism. And uh, it comes in many shapes and sizes. The, uh, in the sense that um, in America, you, I mean, they, they think they never had Constantinianism because of, quote, the separation of church and state. But, of course, everyone assumes America is a Christian nation. And um, that kind of presumption, I think, has severely weakened the church in America of being the kind of community that produces people that can stand against the pretensions of a nation-state that is out of control. Do you pray for the end of Constantinianism? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Is that part of your prayer life? Yeah, um, I, you know, that's that's an interesting. I don't necessarily pray for it. I just assume that um, it's happening, and um, I I say this. Um, given the, given the developments of the loss of power and social prestige by Christians, for example. I think the establishment of the Church of England no longer matters one way or the other. You've been disestablished. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, I, I mean, the, uh, the Archbishop of Canterbury may um, uh, be in the House of Lords, but uh, I don't think that, um, that that means that the Church is not, is, has, still has the power that it had when... Um, uh, it went hand in hand with the state regime. And do you think perhaps that the so you know for the Church of England particularly, the um, liberalisation of it is an attempt to uh, maintain that that influence. Um, it's not for me to say. I'm not that familiar with it. I. Um, Sam Wells, the um, vicar of um, St. Martin's in the Field, is a very close friend. And when uh, he became a dean of the, of the quote, quote, chapel at Duke, I don't know if you've ever seen the chapel, at Duke, <laughs> but it, uh, it's a uh, wonderful Gothic um, church that if, if anybody saw it, they'd call it a cathedral. But when he became the dean of the chapel at Duke, I said, Sam, uh, uh, this is a Constantinian office that uh, for you to be um, a chaplain of the university, use it. So uh, I think that we live in a world in which the shards of Constantinianism are everywhere, and uh, we can use them now in a way that doesn't 
underwrite a Constantinian strategy. Because that's been your response when, um, you know, Time Magazine famously called you, you know, America's best theologian. You've said um, that you've tried to use this form of secular power to contribute towards God's purposes. Has that been a struggle for you? No, it's been fun. (laughs) (laughs) By the way, I, I was not called... America's best theologian. I was called the best theologian in America. Okay. That, where the adjective qualifies. <laughs> the, um, 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 no, I, uh, I just think it's a lot of fun to try to help people uh, see uh, what uh, a remarkable thing it is to see the world as God's world and uh, how that... Um, offers us fresh ways of being human beings that uh, can easily get lost. Mm. Now, um, I'm sure you're aware that you know, 2017 has, has seen some horrific attacks in the UK by both Islamic extremists, but also those targeting Muslim communities. Mm-hmm. And in response, religious tolerance and diversity are often portrayed as modern virtues. I, I'm thinking that you probably don't agree with that. I don't like tolerance. How, how do you think Christians should be responding rather than tolerance and religious diversity? There is a, there's a wonderful new book by John Bolan on tolerance that gives a very good defense of tolerance that if appropriately, um, if appropriately uh, received, I think you might be able to talk about tolerance again. But, I mean, just think about do you want to be tolerated by someone? I mean, tolerance is a position of the powerful that says, I get to put you in your place, but I, but you don't get to put me in my place. So tolerance can be uh, the uh, virtue of those that think they've won. Do you think it's one step away from indifference? Uh, it, it's often led to that. The... Um, uh, the Roman Catholics have been very worried about how um, uh, liberal democracies, with with their strong stress on tolerance, leads to indif- finally to the indifference of the faith. It doesn't matter whether you believe in God or not. Um, it may not matter whether you believe in God or not, but it matters that God makes a difference. The so. Um, I think in America, the crucial institution is the privatization of the faith. Um, You can, in America, you can believe anything you want to believe as long as you say, this is my private position. I wouldn't want to impose it on anyone. Uh, So I don't have any... Uh, strong uh, uh, public commitments of my faith. That's why you get people in America saying things like, uh, well, well, Jesus, I believe Jesus is Lord, but that's just my personal opinion. (laughs) You wonder, (laughs) what would have produced that kind of grammar? (laughs) And uh, it's the distinction between the public and the private that I think... um, uh, subjectivizes the faith 
and turns it into um, something that's weak and uninteresting. It seems to me as though um, when Christians take this um, private approach to faith, it actually makes it even more difficult to understand Islamic extremism and to um, talk about it on a theological level. Right. Oh, I think that's right. Uh, I... I mean, I, I can't pretend to know Islam the way you should know Islam, but I think that one of the difficulties that Islam presents to Christians today is Christians can't imagine people that are willing to die for their faith, it, uh, that Islamic people are ready to do that, oftentimes in misguided ways. Um, uh, is a deep challenge to who we are. We forget that uh, we are a church of the martyrs, and uh, there are plenty. Uh, there are plenty of good reasons for dying for the faith. We just don't kill for it. Yeah. So, I uh, I'm very sympathetic with um, um, Islamic uh, theologians that's, that's, that worry about that. In this country, uh, I think some of the more constructive ways to think about what it means to live among people um, who are different than you in terms of your religious commitments um, is um, uh, Rabbi Sachs' uh, work on difference. I think he's, uh, I mean, Jews, Jews are so much wiser about these matters because They've always had to negotiate a world they didn't create. Yeah. <laughs> it's called Christianity. And uh, so um, uh, they know how to live among a people um, who um, you always have to negotiate. I guess, yeah, they're a practice minority yeah. in, in a way that Christianity is having to learn what it is to, to be that minority, yeah. I, I guess. I hope they'll learn it. Yeah. Um, so since 9-11 in the States, you have become increasingly and perhaps somewhat unwittingly an outspoken voice against American civil religion. Right. Uh, earlier this year, you wrote in the Washington Post warning that Donald Trump is more religious than many of us assume. What led you to that conclusion? Well, uh, that uh, he declared his inauguration today, they... Uh, a day of, I, I can't remember the exact phrase, of ultimate devotion to America. <laughs> and, uh, uh, and also that it was, uh, in the speech he said that he wanted unconditional loyalty to the American project. I just thought it was useful to call idolatry idolatry. <laughs> Because that's what it was. And for me, that, that really brings out tones of Bonhoeffer and, and idolatry, and he uses that term very, very much in his context. Uh, um, well, I, I'm very hesitant to be identified with Bonhoeffer in any way, but uh, I think that's right. Bonhoeffer, did Bonhoeffer use that word much? He, he talks about, um, yeah, the, the idolatry of the Fuhrer and, and uh -huh. saying that, and he called it out very early in the Nazi regime saying this is idolatry and the oh, church 33. must, yeah, church must speak yeah. out against this. Right. Um, and so have you had a lot of reaction from that Washington Post article? No, no, no. I mean, they, uh, people, uh, 
people aren't going to take uh, uh, what a theologian might have to say uh, seriously today. <laughs> Perhaps they've come to expect yeah. it of mm-hmm. you as well. Mm-hmm. When uh, the activist um, Shane Claiborne was last in the UK, he told me that he was going to vote against Trump. And he didn't normally vote, but he described it as firefighting. Uh-huh. Did you vote in the last I presidential did. election? I did. I don't, I don't always vote. Um, 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 Mike Baxter, one of my former students, um, says don't vote. It only encourages them. But <laughs> um, uh, I, as someone com- committed to Christian nonviolence, I think you ought to obey as many laws as you can. Uh, to show that you you have obligations toward your fellow um, uh, brothers and sisters who aren't necessarily Christians to make as reasonably good society as you can, but the um, uh, but I thought that uh, Trump was um, such um, a challenge to who we needed to be, I voted. Um, I, 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 I feel very strongly about abortion. I don't, um, I don't necessarily want the overturning of Roe versus Wade, um, but I do want um, people in... Um, the modes of government we have to think about, for example, what would a child allowance look like where uh, people uh, um, uh, are not uh, required to think that they can't have a child because um, they can't afford it or something like that. Something like we have in in the UK. Absolutely, right. Yeah. And uh, so I, you know, I've never, I don't, like um, uh, Hillary's uh, abortion stance, but I voted for her. And I was, I mean, like most people, I was stunned with the results. I mean, I, I just couldn't believe that, that it had happened, but it happened. It happened, and here we are, kind of in the Trump era now. Yeah. Christians often strive to influence the world to be more just, but you argue that the first task of the church is to make the world the world. Yes. What do you mean by that? Well, I mean that um, the world names all that by God's, all that that people use. Um, to um, um, employ God's patience to live in a manner that God does not exist. And, I mean, an, an example, years ago, with the outbreak of the first Iraq war, I was um, to give some lectures at the Washington Cathedral for the continuing education of Episcopal clergy. And when the bombing started, I called him up and said, I don't want to come. I, I, um, 
I'm just too out of sorts. They said, no, you got to come. So I'm a Protestant and I do my duty. <laughs> and um, when I, uh, I got there and I was talking to these Episcopal clergy, I said, well, I hope if President Bush came over here from the White House and wanted to share the Eucharist with y'all, you wouldn't, you wouldn't, um, uh, you wouldn't commune him. They said, what? We're people of grace. We're always ready, you know, to lay stuff on people. And I said, well, you know, how will he know he's the world? How will he know that bombing mm. human beings made him the world? And that means he, he doesn't know he needs forgiveness. So, I mean, those are the kinds of, uh, of what it means to make the world the world. So setting up more of a... So that, that contrast is obvious. Right. And, so that, and I guess the need for Christ then becomes more obvious Absolutely. in that contrast. Absolutely. I mean, read the Gospel of John. Um, I mean, uh, the light has come into the world to darken the world and um, help the world see the darkness because it's very hard in darkness to see darkness. Uh, and so um, it's an ongoing, um, it's an ongoing discovery for us to, to find in what ways we are the world. Mm. So it, it's not like world is out there and we Christians are okay. I mean, the world is in us. Yeah. And how to discover it, it, it means you're going to need, um, uh, you're going to need the help of brothers and sisters in Christ. Mm. And it could be said that your vocation now is to show America that it's got a serious problem with war. I say before I die, I have a modest ambition. <laughs> I want to convince every American Christian that they have a problem with war. They don't have to be pacifists. They don't have to be just warriors. I just want them to think they got a problem with war. People, I don't think, appreciate the fact that um, we've now had 14 years of war in Afghanistan. Mm. The militarization of the American society is quite remarkable. I'm, I'm not in any way criticizing the military. They are what they are. But that um, Americans have lost a sense of how um, of the limited character of what the military should be about, I think is a very dangerous business. Mm. You, you touched earlier on how you are heavily influenced, though it's debatable how, by the thoughts of the Mennonite theologian, John yeah. Howard Yoder. Um, and you've described your relationship as that of, of friends, where you have a, a gratitude for his teaching of you. I do. Um, in your uh, memoir, you've said that you had no knowledge of what you've generously described as his inappropriate relationship with some of his female Mennonite students. Others would use the term sexual assault. My question to you is, how do we read Yoda's work, it being a core text for many theology students, in the light of his abuse of power? Um, 
it's a very serious question. Uh, if you think, as I think you should think, that our lives should make a difference for how our work is received, um, then John's behavior presents a very uh, serious question about the use of his work. Um, I find it, I have students, former students who are Mennonites who have decided they won't have students read John's work anymore. I can't do that. I mean, uh, of course, I'm, I'm retired, so I'm not going to be teaching, but if I were teaching, um, I would still use the politics of Jesus as one of the, and other writings of his. But I would do so with an asterisk and say, we really have to think about this. John, being brilliant as he was, stupidly had a theory. He had a theory that said, the mainstream tells us that men and women can only touch one another if they're married. But for brothers and sisters in Christ, it surely must be the case that there can be non-sexual forms of touching that um, uh, are not, that is not adultery. Well, um, that was just crazy. <laughs> but he thought that that was part of the eschatological possibilities that um, is suggested in the New Testament. I think he was just wrong and that um, he is rightly uh, criticized by many weighty Mennonite women for what he did. Mm. And it just shouldn't be women, but I mean, many of the many of the women that uh, were involved with him um, uh, ha have come out and been critical, but many others who weren't, who weren't necessarily involved with him also uh, have come out, and rightly so. Yeah. Well, Stanley, thank you so much for your time today. I've got one last question for you, if I may. Most people view theology as a kind of distant theoretical discipline. What practical question, because you are a question-answer um, asker, um, would you challenge Christians in the UK particularly to consider as they attempt to live life, um, as they attempt to live the Christian life? Uh, do you know how to recognise a lie when you have been uh, confronted with one? Do you know how to recognise a lie? It's very important. Why do you think that's so important? Because Wittgenstein's um, comment or remark in Culture and Value, you can only know the lie when you've been at home in the truth. Mm. And what does it mean to be at home in the truth uh, is um, what... Um, I think is a great challenge for us today to know how to be at home in the truth. Stanley, thank you so much uh, for your time. And thank you for listening to The Profile with me, Katie Stock, joined with uh, Professor Stanley Howas. 
You can listen back online at premierchristianity.com forward slash the profile. You can also download the podcast. Join us again at the same time next week. Now coming up next is Dave Rose with Premier Playback.